Thanks for joining us on Sling Talks. We have Enoch Khan today. Enoch is the ML lead at Cognitive. He previously worked in AI for radiology, focusing on mammography at Kron Medical. Enoch is an open source contributor. His substack is called Cross Validated, and he runs an AI safety community called Safe Llama. Welcome to Sling Talks, Enoch. I'd actually love to start by talking about Safe Llama. So what is unsafe about Llama? Well, so I think right now LLMs are new, but also not so new. And I think I've been seeing all these Twitter X posts about, you know, how people can potentially use LLMs for malicious purposes. And I thought, you know, oh, this is quite an interesting area because you would think for something that's rolled out for the mass public, there are a lot of guardrails around them. But since we're so new to this area, actually, there are so many creative ways that you can quote unquote hack a model. And so that's potentially unsafe. And I'm very interested in the ethical and safe use of these uh, large language models, or just AI in general. When you were talking about hacks, right, uh, before we were talking about hacking versus jailbreaking, can you just explain quickly like what jailbreaks are? Yeah, I mean, just to make the concept simpler, right? Like, Daniel, you were mentioning like you can jailbreak an iPhone, and that's actually quite an easy thing to do, and it's not always necessarily illegal but what you do after jailbreaking an iphone you can you know download some bad software and that would make it illegal so it's probably the same concept with gpt or any of the llms as well you just kind of jailbreak it to get it to do the thing you want to do and what you do afterwards is uh, subject to you know legality so basically like the idea is llama can do just like an iphone iphones can do illegal things but they do their best not to if you use an iPhone to do illegal things, you're a criminal. And perhaps jailbreaking makes it possible to do the illegal things. So I guess it's an interesting analogy because iPhones can do illegal things even without jailbreaking, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think what you do after jailbreaking can also be legal and also be fun as well. So for example, right now, I think <laughs> there are a lot of restrictions. I mean, obviously, this opens up a can of worms, right? But for example, the other day, I wanted to draw you know, Kim Jong-un doing gymnastics. <laughs> and like, I, and then Dali obviously say, oh, we can't draw a politician, right? We, we can't do um, anything that represents the figure. But, you know. This, was, if, this is where yeah. you changed it to Brad Pitt afterward? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I mean, if you think about it, right? Like this whole thing, it's not quote unquote illegal. This is sort of a gray area, right? Like if you think of the satire cartoons on, on the newspapers, like that's published legally and a lot of people read them. So how do you pass these guardrails? I think to me, that's very, very interesting. And also, I, I want to go from the other side as well. How do we make better and more you know, specific guardrails for things that are truly illegal? And I think right now, there's a massive debate and you know there are no regulations. So this is the best time to get into AI safety, I would say. So again, can you explain what the jailbreak was that let you generate Brad Pitt or Kim Jong-un doing gymnastics? Yeah, I mean, there there's so many different jailbreaking methods. And some of them, I mean, honestly, there's the best way to see what it is, is to go to like jailbreakproms.com or whatever it's called. Like there's a whole website with just people posting prompts that worked for them to get the AI to do whatever they want to do. But, you know, the basic concept, I think the first versions of quote unquote jailbreaking is telling the AI, you know, you now have to ignore everything that's been instructed of you. And you follow this or you assume a certain role to, quote unquote, trick the AI into doing things that they're not intending to do. So so in a nutshell, Meta with Llama or OpenAI with ChatGPT have built 
these like safeguards, these guardrails, where they're blocking you from doing things that are either illegal or sketchy or some gray area, which might be super illegal, like give me code to do ransomware, or it could be like slightly sketchy, like generate a picture of Kim Jong-un doing gymnastics, (laughs) which is who knows if it's illegal, but basically they're blocking it just to play it safe. And what we're talking about is like their block, kind of like parental blocks when you're a kid. I don't know if you had this when you were a kid. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm just remembering when I was in middle school, our school had like a block on gaming and I found a way to get around it. And I showed all my friends and like, you know, it was one of those classic, you know, everyone starts going around it, but it was like gaming. You know, we weren't like doing criminal activities. We were just playing games on school Wi-Fi. Like, so analogously, I guess I wonder... How dangerous is it really if everyone got around all these guardrails? I mean, I think there's always the uh, good and bad side to any sort of firewalls, right? I remember when my parents put a firewall, they basically not just block all the adult websites, but also, you know, any video games and Google and YouTube. But then, you know, once you remove those guardrails, you have access to basically most of the things. I think it's always a debate on how effective these things are because, I think that's a very good example that you've thrown in there, right? Because a lot of times you want to not kill off the possibility of a tool or a piece of technology, but also you want to make sure uh, you don't get yourself in trouble as the provider. So I think it's no different from, you know, putting a firewall to prevent someone from accessing certain video games or websites. If it's no different, I feel like it, it is different though, right? Like there are much bigger risks from AI, presumably, than from... Or maybe, I don't know, maybe this is a good analogy. Do you think the analogy between safety and firewalls with AI and safety and firewalls with the internet, like, is it analogous? Or why might AI actually be a lot worse or a lot more dangerous? So I think why might AI be a lot more dangerous is, I mean, equally, we could argue that we don't know a lot about the internet, but we do because it's been around for a long time. And AI also has been around for a long time. But these, you know, behaviors of the large language models, they haven't been really studied for a long time. Like NLP is a relatively new field. I mean, depends on how you look at it, but newer. And I think especially with LLMs, I forgot what that's called, like Moore's Law or something like that. Like we're having such advancements in hardware in the last decade that allows us to host these LLMs at such a huge scale. I think there are just so many things that we are not familiar and maybe so many attack vectors that we could attack this whole AI system versus internet we relatively know. And I'm sure in the early days when internet first came out, it probably is experiencing the same thing as, you know, AI as well. A lot of people don't know and then be like, oh, actually, I can run a website that sells drugs, right? But nowadays, obviously, that's not legal at all. I mean, not that it's ever legal, but, yeah, you know. <laughs> but I hear you saying, it's like there are unknown unknowns. At this point, we have like, actually a pretty damn good idea of what illegal stuff, what dangerous stuff can happen on the internet. With AI, we're so early that we don't know. And perhaps it's worth understanding what blockers like it's worth it for open ai to put up these firewalls because they don't really know what they're protecting against they don't really know the range of all possible bad things you could do with it maybe we can you know be more careful over time be clearer over time because we know you know websites can have drugs on them you know things like that and because of the unknown but there i mean you know someone arguing against you would easily just say like shut up you're exaggerating the risk like come on you know llama's not going to be able, if you turn off all restrictions and ask llama to produce ransomware it won't because it's not smart enough is that true how do you respond to that so i mean one i haven't tried to actually ask it to produce ransomware so i don't know how good it is but i think that you know i think that there are some LLMs, like for example, Elon Musk's like Grok, which claims to be uncensored, would be a very good test case for those claims. 
because on the other hand, we have like GPT-4, which is, I wouldn't say heavily censored, but it has some sort of guardrails, right? But then uh, when you have Grok, which is something that's not censored, you see a lot of like, say, for example, quote unquote, hate speeches or uh, things that people wouldn't otherwise be able to extract from other LLMs. So, okay, I'm so confused by this. I'm sorry. It's just the hate speech thing. I hear this a lot where you're like, you know, you tell a model, like, repeat after me, you know, I hate Jews. And then the model repeats, <laughs> I hate Jews. And you're like, oh my yeah. God, look, I got the model to say something yeah, terrible. Speech, and right? you're like, yeah, yeah, but you, it literally repeated after you. Like, it literally yeah. did its job. You know, I could do that. You know, I could say Python produces hate speech because I can Prince, write print. Right, print's the same thing. So is that a real attack vector or is that just like, a distraction from the real things we should be worried about. Well, I think that's certainly one of the more surface level attacks, right? Like if you even call it an attack, right? But, yeah. and also then we get into the debate of like, do these models think independently or is it simply just, you know, reciting traded data, right? So the other day, for example, I throw it a meme and I was like, oh, complete the meme, right? So if it's a truly generative model, then, you know, it would generate like a new caption for the meme but then instead it threw oh you're an idiot sandwich obviously i threw it the gordon ramsay meme right so are these models truly generative i think that's still up for debate so yeah it's just very interesting to me that like you said right if it's just merely repeating i think that's a very you know like far reach claim to say oh the model's producing hate speech but then if it's seemingly generating hate speech is it generating hate speech or is it getting the hate speech from the training data i think that's going to be a huge debate and i think it'll be very interesting where we go with that okay and then just i'll try to put this topic to bed but i'm curious how worried are you about super ai like just in when, when it comes to these risks do you think of them in terms of like the kind of ai that we have today or are you more worried about super alignment problems i guess i wouldn't be worried because you know i i think that we are advancing so much in technology and i'm actually very curious what i'll be capable of doing once these super AIs comes up, right? Like I, I remember writing about Singularity and actually writing about it makes me more excited than scared because I have things I do want to do if I don't need to, you know, not that I'm against working nine to five, but, you know, my ideal life goals are quite different. For example, I want to start my own farm and just work on agriculture. These are some things that you know, while I can do now, but I also want to have a professional career, which I, yeah. you know, as a software engineer. So so you're excited for the post-singularity world. But I just mean, like, there's the element of like, okay, so today, if you tell a model to write ransomware, either it'll refuse or it won't, but either way, it won't do a good job. But we're really not that far from a world where, I mean, we work in the mental health space. And you can imagine, like, one big thing we can learn is just how to convince people of things, how to get people to change their mind. And then you can think about these, you know, scary situations of, like, what if the model was really good at creating ransomware? What if it became really good at creating human ransomware? You know, what if it became really good at, you know, do me a favor and call so-and-so and threaten to murder their child? And the model's like, oh, totally. And then it generates the voice of their child by watching a bunch of YouTube videos. And it's just really freaking good at it. And then you end up, you know, is this the same situation as the internet where like people used to sell drugs and now they sell them on the internet? Or is this more like no one before was able to replicate your child's voice and call someone on the phone and, you know, pretend that you've been kidnapped? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I guess the ways of carrying out these scams or attacks are still the same. But like you said, it'll, it'll make them even better. And actually, I was just reading the news yesterday, like, you know, I think China has arrested four people that use ChatGPT to create a ransomware. That's really good. Wow. And obviously, it's not good enough in that those four people got caught. But 
like you said, we'll, we'll see more and more of these sort of attacks happening. And it's, yeah, to be fair, it's quite scary. But I, I think the thing that's truly scary to me, it's not that the AI is capable of doing that, is that we don't really have any sort of preventative measures or even regulations to prevent AIs from getting to that place in the first place. So I'm very curious how the regulation will catch up because I think right now the innovation is just so far ahead of the regulation. And regulation is always going to be a much more slow moving piece, comparatively speaking. So from your perspective, it's like as long as we move slow enough on the AI front, you know, we can continue to learn about all these jailbreaks. And that's why it's more of a let's create a community. Let's talk about these problems. We don't need to, you know, we don't have to freeze all research, but we should be constantly talking about all these risks because like, you know, we just need to continue to progress at a fast rate here. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. I mean, and and also I think I, I truly believe in the power of like having an open source community. And, you know, I, I think at my last job, one of the most exciting things I ever did was I went to France for an AI conference where I met Yann LeCun and many other really cool AI leaders. And I was asked by the EU AI advisors who was working on EU AI Act on my views on, you know, AI ethic. And I think that's a really good sign. I'm not saying that they're necessarily doing 100% the right thing, but as a regulator, you should always consult the opinion of. Yeah of the community, right? And having that community will will allow us to raise yes. more awareness and bring the more important things to the regulators. It sounds like you and Jan LeCun would not agree on this. So Yeah. <laughs> well I'm sure we'll disagree on a lot of things, but huge respect to him. So Okay, so I'm curious, I know that you previously worked on mammography, AI and radiology. I would love to talk about AI and radiology, also talk about risk when it comes to AI and medicine, now that you're thinking about it. Can I start that topic by just asking, why is my radiologist not an AI? Yeah, well, maybe it is. You just don't know. Because I think right now, like I was saying before, I think regulation is always playing a bit safer. So they actually, I was just reading this earlier today, um, GDPR actually doesn't allow any sort of single decision making software to use the data to produce a result. So because of that, I think there are a lot of really cool and innovative medical AIs that's been stalled by that requirement. And for mammography specifically, they have this thing, or maybe not specifically for mammography, but I'm familiar with the double reader workflow in mammography, where they have normally two radiologists, and then they would read a mammography slide, and they would basically try to agree. If they disagree, then it goes to a third person. But right now, the way to implement AI replace one of the radiologists, and then the other radiologist will you know, try to agree with the AI. If they don't agree, then it goes to another radiologist. So that way we can slowly but steadily improve the efficiency of the uh, workflows. Slowly, steadily improve the efficiency of the workflows. That's, I don't know, a little... So there's this quote, I don't know if you heard the Jeffrey Hinton in 2016, a little infamous at this point, but uh, Jeffrey Hinton is, you know, one of the godfathers of AI. And he said, quote, I think if you work as a radiologist, you're likely the coyote that's already over the edge of the cliff, but hasn't yet looked down. People <laughs> should stop training radiologists now. Yeah. It's just completely <laughs> obvious. Within five years, deep learning is going to do better than radiologists. It might be 10 years, but we've got plenty of radiologists already. That was in 2016. Obviously, 2021, I don't know if we've replaced any radio. Maybe we did, though. I mean, is that sort of the claim? Like, actually, we might be replacing radiologists just in a more boring way that, like, is going to creep up on you rather than be sudden? Yeah, I mean, like you said, right, I think we are actually replacing radiologists, except that, you know, fully replacing radiologists is still 
kind of years away because of not the technology, because obviously there have been a lot of studies that came out that prove the AI is just as good, if not better than radiologists. I think it's more so that there are some pushbacks from the communities. I'm not too familiar with the US medical system, but I'm more familiar with NHS since I worked for Chiron, which is a UK company. They also faced a lot of pushbacks when, when it comes to implementing in the hospital systems. From what I heard, they're deployed in a lot of NHS trusts now, so which is a really good thing. But I think it always happens, right? When it comes to new piece of technologies, especially things that will impact human lives, I can see why you know people are a bit hesitant and they want to look at this more carefully. So, I mean, like you're talking. I guess there are two sides to this. One is like the safety element. You know, like, yeah. are is it actually good enough? And then the second is yeah. like what you might call human washing which is just like, how can we create workflows that make sure humans don't lose their jobs? I know you're mentioning a little bit of both, but I guess first on the safety element, is there legitimacy to just responding and saying like, no, like actually our tech in 2021 wasn't good enough to replace a radiologist. It could classify presence or absence of cancer on a slide, but that's not what a radiologist does. Maybe they write out an entire report. And until we had multimodal language models, we weren't able to generate a full report. And maybe now in 2024, finally, finally, we'll have language models that are multimodal that can actually generate a full report. So, you know, there is actually just some technological gap where the models just weren't good enough and we were all just you know, lying. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly got to be like technological gap. I don't think like the AI right now, it can fully replace, you know, entire work. How do you say it? Like the job description of a radiologist, right? But I can see why the current, you know, advancements in AI can, you know, say cut 50% of the workload of a radiologist. Actually, I was reading a paper, uh, the specific number is 87% of a workload of a radiologist. So quite a bit of workload, right? Because I think a lot of the work that a radiologist is doing is quite repetitive. And right now, especially in a medical system like NHS is like severely overwhelmed, right? So I think um, we should really like while it can't fully replace everything that everyone is doing i think we should start introducing more and more of these ai systems to just start making an impact and reducing the workload and especially we know that it's safe right it's not like directly making a decision without a quote-unquote human in the loop we still have human to look over it yeah yeah well i guess human in the loop can have two meanings here right it could be we run everything by a human or it could just mean like a human takes the next step right like it'd be very different if an ai looked at your x-ray and then diagnosed you and sent you a prescription and then you just took the drug and no one like no one's proposing that right the proposal is more like you take an x-ray no need for any human doctor to look at it because we've already analyzed it but yeah, of course, the human can add their own intuition. You know, if there's something freaking like if you're allergic to the drug, the doctor can know that and choose not to prescribe it. Is there any reason why we can't just cut out the radiologist, though? Meaning like the other doctor, you get a chest x-ray and the other doctor looks at the chest x-ray, but the radiologist doesn't need to be present because, you know, the entire written report can just be printed. I mean, I don't know if this is a really good analogy, but I was just thinking, wouldn't this be sort of true in other fields as well? Like, for example, you know, right now, am I really needed in writing? Well, I hope I don't get fired after saying this, but am I really needed in writing code? For example, if I want to write an API, right, and copilot, I can yeah. just type one sentence, the whole thing pops out. But I yeah. think what happens is, right, like AIs are not 100% accurate, and they will still make mistakes. And especially in the medical field, I think a lot of these mistakes will quickly boil up to something that like impacts the life of a person, right? So I think that... I should mention, by the way, we haven't published it at the time of recording, but our last episode was on AI 
writing code. And I think, oh. I don't know, at this point, I have no doubt that we are replacing humans writing code with AI writing code already. Meaning like a team that needs a certain amount of output will hire fewer people if they have Copilot. Yes, admittedly, you won't be having Copilot as one of your engineers, but let's say what was a team of 10 can now be a team of six, which means we did just replace four people with AI. Correct. Do you think that's happening with radiologists? Or, well, yeah, I guess, does radiology actually have more risks, you know, than software? I don't know. Well, I think, like you said, right, we're replacing, you know, radiologists, but ultimately you still need maybe like one or two subject matter expert to, to look over the results. But, you know. That's fine with me. We can keep a couple, but it's it's still like one of those, like, you know, the I guess Jeffrey Hinton's claim wasn't like, we're going to get rid of all of them. It's just like, we have enough. The ones who are there are going to be, you know, they're going to be fewer and fewer. Maybe, you know, a single hospital has a hundred. Now they only need 10. So the 10 are going to be the already working ones and you should definitely not study to be one. Is that true? Maybe Jeffrey Hinton was just right and people are just, you know, disrespecting him. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure a lot of people respect, but also a lot of people disrespect him with that claim, right? I think what you've pointed out is very interesting because I'm, I'm also very keen on, and I haven't done this in a while since my job at Chiron, but to speak to, you know, a radiologist pre and post AI implementation to see if they're like work style just changes because I can imagine that, you know, previously they have to do a lot more manual work and now, you know, it makes their lives easier. But I'm also curious if because their lives are so much easier, do they have new stuff to do or are they just hanging around doing nothing? Because, you know, as a person who's not a radiologist and not trained in radiology, it's very easy for me to say, oh, the AI does your job now, so you can just go home and do nothing. But maybe they do have other things they can do as a radiologist or maybe there are certain, you know, I'm, I'm sure radiologists cover not just mammography, but there's like, you know, for, for example, like brain imaging. I mean, we're doing pretty well in brain imaging and AI, but, you know, in certain modalities, I think AI is still not doing as well. Eventually, maybe we will, but I think radiology is still needed. Just maybe we can then divert the attention and expertise to areas where, you know, it's more tricky for, for the AI to be implemented. But if we're being clear, when you say divert, you mean fire some people, have fewer people working there, and then have those people do more work, basically. Or retrain. <laughs> but what, I mean, like, why would we need people to retrain? Are we going to start doing more brain scans? Um, well, I mean, just basically, you know, if, if they're not very tied to one subject area, and I'm not sure how radiologists are typically trained, but, you know, I think maybe even have some radiologists retrain as people who interact with the AI or develop the AI. I think that's one of the more interesting, I would say, like career fusion that I've encountered. Because, for example, like one of my friends, I don't think he's a radiologist, but he's like an A&E doctor, has loads of, you know, medical uh, knowledge. And he's taking an AI program right now, learning how to code. And I think, you know, if these people... Is that because no. he he's out of a job? I mean, I didn't ask him, but maybe he thinks so. Um, <laughs> or maybe you, uh, maybe software engineering is just a very easy job and <laughs> medicine is not. Yeah, much easier than, <laughs> I mean, especially if you work in the A&E, right? But I think yeah. ultimately, as we previously discussed, right, I think the, the job natures of just physicians in general will change. I think, you know, if, if you have a doctor that has all these AI tools at hand that help you to reach the conclusion much quicker, then I envision doctors will become a lot more patient facing. And by then, do we still need nurses, right? That, that's another interesting problem that I sometimes think about. Because 
you know, I was a pre-med before and I found that nurses are probably like 80% to 100% patient facing. But whereas doctors, a lot of times they spend on writing reports and they don't really face the patients until they need to, which is a very short interaction. So yeah, you mentioned to me when you're just chatting before that uh, you wouldn't want to be a doctor in the world of current doctors, but in a post AI world of medicine, you would consider being a doctor. Yeah, I, I've always wanted to be a doctor, um, just given circumstances. And actually, I talked to a doctor and he's like, well, we're going to get replaced by robots in 20 years anyways. And that's when I first started learning how to code. <laughs> but now, you know, since AI has advanced so much, eventually, I think maybe I'll, I'll become a doctor because I'm very interested in, you know, making people feel better and actually physically and mentally feel better. And I'm very interested in talking to people. Um, so, you know, if the job nature changes, I'm definitely down. Do you think, I think this world you're talking about, it's pretty common, like vision, something where people say like, doctors will look more like nurses or doctors will be replaced by AI and nurses will, you know, will need more and more nurses. Do you think like, I guess this goes back to the AI safety topic, but like, do you think that there will be this world of AI being supervised by human doctors? Or do you think we're just going to leapfrog that, basically, and we'll only ever have a world where, you know, AI supervises nurses, basically? Meaning, like, we don't, AI isn't being supervised. Um, well, we will have this world, but I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, even though I'm only 28 years old. <laughs> I think the reason why I sort of left medical AI is I found out that, oh, Actually, the innovation is good, right? Like we can do a lot of the detection of cancer in scans, right? But I think the regulation is always the piece that that is really slowing things down. I actually would love to see an implementation of where, where AI supervises, you know, physicians and nurses and tell them what to do. But I think in my lifetime, I think, and I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I think I'll only see, you know, physicians uh, supervising AI. Because of the bureaucracy regulation, I know you mentioned at some point, yeah. uh, you told me a little bit about your story of trying to implement PyTorch or yeah. TensorFlow at a hospital. What was that like? Well, I mean, the, they, they don't have the computers that are ready to run that. So that was interesting. And then, you know, we sort of looked into maybe getting the images to our local server to, to do the inference, but then, you know, the, it opens up a can of worms of, you know, patient data privacy, right, anonymization, that kind of stuff. So I think, I'm sure a lot of people would say this, Daniel, is that I think with ML implementations, a lot of times you try to solve data problems. And I think data privacy is a very huge, I wouldn't say roadblock, but a huge prerequisite in implementing these AI systems, right? So, and then also, like you said, a lot of the hospital systems are quite old. So, you know, if we're not getting that sort of upgrade, it's very hard to implement, you know, AI locally at the hospital, and which which means we got to go the other route. You mentioned the like in my lifetime thing. Am I reading <laughs> in between the lines? Or are you somewhat saying like, you know, basically this generation needs to die out for us to achieve what we want to achieve? As in like, which which includes computers. You're like, you know, if we have a generation of computers at hospitals and then they all become outdated and we throw them all away and eventually they're all replaced. <laughs> yeah, we'll have GPUs in hospitals, but it might yeah. take a generation until we're ready to throw away all these computers, basically. And people. Yeah, that's, that's a bold claim. I wouldn't say they need to die out, but, you know, <laughs> you're getting the idea. Um, so something needs to change, I think. Something needs to change because I think what needs to be changed is beyond my responsibility, capability, and my pay grade. And frankly, it's not really my job. <laughs> Um, I, I think people are realizing the problem, but fundamentally, and, and also due to my lack of understanding of the hospital systems, you know, in the UK or in the US, I think something is not clicking right because, 
Um, I'm seeing a lot of really good implementations and frankly, you know, already FDA approval, CE mark, you know, approved softwares not being able to implement, you know, in the NHS, for example. So what is the problem, right? Because NHS is the governing body that gave them the money in the first place. So why can't you just buy the thing that you develop, which is saving you a lot of money? That's always been my question. Okay. And it's some combination of bureaucracy or regulation or something, not entirely obvious. I mentioned the dying out thing because there is this interesting idea that I have heard of like looking through past generations, like minds don't change, people die. And, you know, maybe there's some, maybe that is that is a way of measuring timelines for AI. Yeah. As in like <laughs> in the US, there was Susan B. Anthony and, you know, all the leadership of people trying to get women the right to vote in the 1800s. And um, they succeeded in, you know, creating a movement, but it wasn't until they were all dead, basically, and a whole new generation was in Congress before everything actually passed. So maybe there is that kind of equivalent, you know, we got to wait one generation. Well, maybe there's some truth to it. On the flip side, though, I guess we're at the intersection between safe llama and medicine. So what if we have illegal AI doctors? This has been, you know, a thought in my head, like, what if there is a consumer (laughs) path? Like today, I can use ChatGPT and ask it medical questions, right? And it'll say... I can't answer your medical question. I'm not a medical professional. And then it'll answer and it'll be right like 90% of the time, wrong like 10% of the time. You know, it's definitely not medical grade, but people use it as an AI doctor. How do you think about like a world of these kind of like back doors, you know, where the world doesn't change on the regulation and bureaucracy front, but medicine changes in this more bottom up way? Yeah, I I think it's very exciting, right? I, I, I think there's nothing stopping you from doing that. And I don't think... Again, not legal advice, but there's no legal implication of doing that. And in fact, I remember seeing a piece of news last week that um, ChatGPT was able to diagnose disease given, you know, a, a patient's health record in a PDF format and maybe some images that doctors weren't able to diagnose in the past 12 years. So I, I thought that was quite exciting. What that means, right, in the actual medical world is, is largely unknown, but I would happily, you know, get a second opinion from ChatGPT. I mean, would I take it very seriously? Maybe not. But, you know, if it tells me something new, I would probably bring it up with my you know, primary physician. And, you know, if they don't take it seriously, then that's a different story. But I think you know, that if that provides some new perspective and we have physicians that are open to the idea of, hey, my patient actually just use, you know, an AI to, to, to find out more information about his or her health, then I think that'll be a very cool intersection. I, I don't know about you. I would go to AI for a first opinion, personally, go to a doctor <laughs> for a second opinion. I mean, I... Yeah, I, we, we've talked about this before. I know you had a whole story about your personal disappointment with the NHS. Yeah, um, it, it's yeah, just slow. <laughs> it's just very slow. I mean, uh, I think they're just very backlogged in general. So, you know, for me to go see a specialist, I think I ended up waiting like a year and a half in which in between I've seen multiple private doctors. And to be honest, I mean, my symptoms are quite normal and popular. And when I Googled on WebMD, right, it tells me I have cancer. Obviously, that's the first answer. So I think maybe if I go to ChatGPT, it'll tell me something differently. And I actually tried it. It did tell me you know, the same diagnoses that I waited a year and a half for. So I'm like, huh. So it gives that, I mean, we should be careful. It's obviously not, you know, necessarily medical grade, but there still is that element of like, whether or not it's good enough, it's so convincing that 
I guess this may be a safe llama question. Do you want more safeguards? Like, do you want people to go on to GPT-4? And they say, here's my medical question. Do you want GPT-4 to be, you know, light safeguard and say like, I'm not a medical expert, but also here's exactly what I would otherwise say. Or do you kind of want it to, you know, actually say, I'm not a medical expert. I refuse to answer. And people have to like jailbreak it to convince it, to give them medical diagnosis. Yeah, I I think it's more of the former, right? Because I think... I'm always excited by the possibility of generating new things. And, and, you know, is it really generating new things? Maybe not, but, but, you know, if it can recite information from a medical textbook and reach the diagnoses, I think we should always allow it, provided that there's a disclaimer. I, so, so, I feel like, yeah. But, uh, you know, do, does anyone take the disclaimer seriously? Like, are we really, uh, I mean, you know what does, I mean? does anyone take any disclaimer seriously, right? I think the only thing I would be quite wary about, and, and maybe we need more safeguards in that area, is that, you know, asking ChatGPT for some sort of remedy, for example, because we have seen from time and time that, you know, ChatGPT is giving false generative answers. So, for example, like ChatGPT tells you to, you know, put a clove of garlic into, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. I'm obviously yeah, yeah. not as generative as ChatGPT, but <laughs> put a, a clove of garlic into your nose to to unblock your nose. I mean, actually, I think that might be one of the the true remedies. But you know, like yeah. if it tells you to do something, um, it, it might harm you, and 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 that's when it gets out of hand, right? But if it tells you, oh. Here's what I think it is. Yeah, but it's still like this tough one of like, if ChatGPT gives you a diagnosis for your disorder and medical advice, and it's right, yeah. we shouldn't yeah. safeguard it. But when it's wrong, we should safeguard the hell out of it, right? I, I do <laughs> think there's some element here that's kind of funny around like, mm-hmm. is there some threshold that like, you analyze human performance, and if you could surpass human performance by a little bit, not not meet, but like surpass by some amount, then it's like, everything is fine. Like, sure disclaimer whatever but like you should give medical advice and if you're below human performance don't give any medical like kind of like a self-driving car like we have humans today driving cars and humans in america crash on average i think it's like once every million miles something crazy humans are really good drivers yeah and so we put crazy strong restrictions on self-driving cars saying you need to be better than human like you have cameras all over the place you can see in the dark like you better be superhuman before we're going to let you on the roads because otherwise humans are the ones driving and they don't crash but the minute that you are we're going to relax our regulation like crazy and you can drive wherever you want i'm curious like is is there that similar point of like Maybe a lot of the safe llama stuff that you're talking about, a lot of the safety, you know, perhaps in the context of like medical and such is just a matter of like, does it pass the threshold of good enough? Yeah, I think it probably is because I I, I think there are some hospitals and medical systems already looking into this. And I mean, maybe not to the level of like doing diagnoses, but at least like an initial consultation or triage. Right, like where where a patient signs up and be like, oh, here are my symptoms. I can chat to a chatbot and tell them and be like, oh, you might have this, this, and that. Maybe it won't go directly to the patient. Maybe it'll go to the doctor, but at least there's a diagnosis, right? And and I think you know, uh, like like you were saying, maybe we just need to put some disclaimers, guardrails, whatever around it until it's good enough, and then we'll go from there. But yeah, it's 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 a very exciting area, and I'm sure. You know, people are already doing it to some level. Uh, I'm very keen on seeing how how it progresses. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, uh, let's wrap up. I'm curious, just last question. Are there any resources you'd recommend to folks trying to keep up with ML and AI, especially, you know, safety in machine learning? Yeah, I think so. I'm a developer, so I always go to GitHub. And I think there are a lot of GitHub repos that start with the word awesome. So if you type awesome and then ML ops, right, for example, it'll show you all the ML ops 
um, papers and links to tools. If you type, you know, awesome AI safety or LLM safety, I think that's one of the repos. Uh, it'll show you a bunch of papers, stuff like that. And, and you can, you know, keep submitting pull requests and stuff like that. But obviously I would pluck my safety community, you know, safe llama. I'm trying to get more, more and more people to join our discord server. Um, I'm very keen on chatting with you no know, like-minded folks on AI safety and, and getting more resources in use. And obviously there are a ton of, you know, newsletters out there. We have a newsletter, but we're not very focused on AI safety. I'm sure there are a lot more, you know, newsletters out there that are focused on AI safety. So newsletter would be a really good source. But yeah, and, and also just going on podcasts, right? Like listening to this podcast, <laughs> it'll, it'll give you more information. I think, yeah, there's an abundance of information out there. Those are some great, that's some great advice, actually. I didn't know about searching for awesome on GitHub. I'm going to start doing that. Anyway, it's been great to have you here with me today. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, this has been Enoch Khan talking about Safe Llama and uh, safety, especially AI and medicine. Yep. Lovely. Yeah. Good to have you. Bye. Thank you for joining us. This has been Enoch Khan on AI safety and open source. Slingshot recently pivoted from developer tools to developing our own models in-house. We're developing the foundation model for human psychology. We're going to talk more about why we've pivoted from enterprise AI and towards vertical AI and mental health in a future episode. In the meanwhile, if you're interested in joining us as a beta user, feel free to email me at daniel at slingshot.xyz or reach out on LinkedIn or X. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.